Well, turn with me this morning to the book of Amos in the Old Testament, the minor prophet Amos. So Hosea, Joel, Amos. Been working our way through these surveys of the Old Testament books, trying to get uh, a glimpse at their big ideas, grasp, grasp the flow of the book, and in many instances how they then find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So the book of Amos this evening, we will read from chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and make our way through about uh, the first half, two-thirds of this book. So Amos chapter 1, and beginning at verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Evin and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. Amen. We'll end our reading there this evening. Trust God to bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. On what basis does God hold nations accountable? Is that a question you've ever asked? That a lot of people are asking that question. Well, throughout the book of Amos, he's very helpful to answer that question because the prophet addresses not only Israel and Judah, but Gentile nations as well. He's not the only prophet to do it. Isaiah and Jeremiah often take time where they turn uh, to the other nations, the nations not in this specific covenant, the Mosaic covenant with God, in order to indict them of their sin. And the sweeping indictment that Amos gives us, you heard me read it in the opening verses, we could have gone on reading several more nations mentioned, in which Amos calls the nations to account. It shows us that God does indeed hold sinners accountable. He holds all sinners accountable, and we learn from this book in particular how he holds those humans accountable, both those who are inside and those who are outside of his covenant people. 
Now Amos, as a prophet, preaches to the northern kingdom. So we can situate him as living in Israel. The opening verse mentions that he ministered during the reigns of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. This was the second uh, Jeroboam. So you think of the first uh, Jeroboam. He was the one who uh, presided over the newly divided kingdom, the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south, and he set up the worship centers there in the northern part of the kingdom. Remember the golden calves that Jeroboam the first built. He was afraid uh, after the division of the kingdom, if they go back to the Jerusalem temple into the southern kingdom, then they will reunite. You know the old saying that the family that prays together stays together? Well, Jeroboam one knew that was true, and so he set up his own worship center there in the northern kingdom. Well, this is a later Jeroboam, Jeroboam 2, and yet Amos will address those worship centers. He frequently speaks to the people in Samaria, that's your northern capital, and the people in Bethel, one of those worship centers that was established years earlier. We also read that he ministered two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know when that earthquake was. It's not dated in other uh, records, so we're left guessing about when that might be. But since he names the king, both the king of Israel there in the north and the king of Judah in the south, Uzziah, we can place him probably three or four decades before the exile. So there he is in the northern kingdom Israel, speaking to those power centers of politics and religion, and calling the people to repent only 30 or 40 years before the exile would come, before they'd be ransacked by Assyria and taken out of their land. In many ways, Amos is like Hosea. He tries to move the nation towards repentance. He tries to get the covenant people to be faithful to their God so that their defeat will not become necessary. That's the burden of the prophet. Now, while all prophets denounce sin, and even sin specifically, Amos certainly doesn't shy away from specifics. He mentions the actual sins that have gotten the people in trouble with God. He names these sins, and he promises that God will hold the people that commit them accountable. And the imagery that he gives us there in the very opening verse is that like a lion, God roars against sin. So let's look at the prophet Amos this evening. Let's see how this prophet presents to us the God who roars against sin. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see God roaring against the nations. Now you got a flavor for this when I read the opening 10 verses this evening. But in chapters 1 and 2, God, through the prophet Amos, addresses eight specific nations. And at the beginning of each address, you find this refrain. For three sins of the nation, even for four, I will not relent. Now, what do we make of this pattern? You've got a similar pattern over in the book of Proverbs, three and then four, or six things the Lord hates, yea, seven 
he detests. And some see that as a way of, of giving a list of sins and then saving the worst for last, so to speak. So here's three sins that are bad. Listen to this fourth, because this is where you have really crossed the line. This is where you have finally triggered God's wrath. That's one way to read the three-four sequence. Another way is to notice, at least here in Hosea, if you add the numbers three and four, you get the number seven, which suggests these nations have reached the fullness of sin. Seven often used in context of completion in the Bible, seven days of creation and what have you. So whether it's, okay, you filled up the cup and now it's time to pour it out, or these things I was patient and this one crossed the line, whichever way you read it, God is saying, okay, here's the grounds of condemnation. You've broken the law, and now I will hold you accountable. Now, which specific sins does God mention here in this book? Well, let me just run through the list quickly. You can look over the the verses as I read them, beginning with uh, verse 3 there in chapter 1. But God first addresses Syria to the north of Israel and says that she has shown excessive cruelty and violence in war. So a nation that has treated people as if they were objects. Gaza in verses 6 through 8, they've captured cities and sold their citizens into slavery. The captured citizens have been turned into slaves. And most likely you're talking unprotected cities there that they just ransacked. Uh, an attack. So an act that is vicious as well as cowardly, turning people into slaves. Tyre is guilty of the same. They've sold their allies into slavery. In other words, probably war going on here, and they sold out their allies. They weren't faithful to those to whom they made a promise. So they lied, and then in order to gain personally, they did this action, and that's dictated their whole foreign policy. Edom has displayed anger against others, and their anger never wanes. In verses 11 and 12, their anger shows no compassion, even pursuing uh, their brother with a sword, tears its victims like some kind of wild animals. Again, cruelty, anger, vengeance, violence. Ammon, in verses 13 to 14, they have committed war atrocities, even as despicable as attacking and ripping open pregnant women. So those women and their unborn children, if you think about it, in war, they pose no threat to the Ammonite army. There's no need to attack them. So they're a nation of people who are unjust, who attack its weakest citizens and inflict terror on other people. And Moab has, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, desecrated graves, which shows a desire for revenge. They burn even the bones of Edom's king. In other words, they went to war, they killed somebody, and then they just kept attacking after the person was already dead. So an insatiable desire for revenge. That's quite a description, is it not, of these other nations' sins. Violence, greed, injustice, attacking its weakest citizens. That is the sins for which God condemns these other nations. Now, draw a conclusion about that in just a moment. But there are two more nations that Amos speaks to. 
In these opening verses, the review I just gave you, the first six nations, he was talking about the Gentile nations around Israel. And I want you to think about his strategy here. He's in the north, and he's talking about Israel's enemies. And he's talking about how bad they are, and what sinners they are, and how God's going to get those people one day. And I bet his audience loved it. They loved hearing what Amos had to say. In fact, when we come into chapter 2 and start reading verses 4 and 5, he begins to address the southern kingdom, the other part of the people of God. And I bet his audience loved it even more, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. He says these southern Judahites, they're lawbreakers, they're idolaters, and they're going to face God's judgment. I bet they loved it. But then he turns the twist and he turns his guns against Israel. Now, maybe some suspected it was going that way, and maybe others were blindsided. But I wonder what the people thought when he got to the last nation, and in verses 6 through 8, criticized the sins of his own people. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. What kind of sins are being mentioned here in verses 6 through 8? Well, they're abusing the poor in order to gain wealth. They're denying justice in the middle of verse 7 to the oppressed. They are guilty of immorality. In verse 8, they withhold needed goods to other people. In the middle of the verse, we see that they misuse God's house. They're uh, drinking wine, taken as fines. They're, in other words, they're, they're selfishly indulging themselves there, even in God's house. So what do we see Judah and Israel doing? And Israel in particular, they are committing sins that violate Israel's covenant, the moral laws, the civil laws, and even the ceremonial laws. The, the laws that God said, these reflect my holy nature. Do this, don't do this, Ten Commandments. And then the way those laws were worked out in civil relationships, certain ways they should and shouldn't act, and then the way those laws will be worked out in worship. God will hold them accountable for breaking all of them. And in the rest of the chapter, we read God telling Israel, you know, I, I destroyed the nations that were before you in order to give you this land. But since you have not listened to my correction, now I will destroy you. I, I got rid of one wicked people and gave you the land, but if you are going to be wicked, then I will get rid of you as well. And so what begins to emerge here? is a theme that Amos will make very prevalent later in the book. We'll read one of these passages tonight. And it's this, mere membership in the covenant community does not guarantee protection from judgment. 
In fact, if a people are part of the covenant community, they have more exposure to God's truth, more privilege in that area, then the condemnation may be worse because they have sinned against God when he clearly revealed himself to them. What conclusion should we make for how God holds nations accountable? It's this. God expects all people to keep his moral law. No people group is exempt from the responsibility to live, to bear God's image, and to obey the law that he has given them, whether revealing it through nature or even writing it on their hearts. Listen to Romans 2. It reads, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, or do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. See, when God made Adam and entered into a covenant with him, Adam was representing all mankind. And all humans are therefore accountable to God for their sin. This is the argument Paul makes in Romans 1 and 2. All people are accountable to God. And therefore, all nations will give an account to God for their moral conduct. When you come to Israel and Judah, it gets even more specific. God entered into a special covenant with them. He wrote down his law for them. And as I've said, made application to their civil society and also to their worship. Interesting, those specific commands are never directly applied to those other pagan nations. And yet the moral law is applied to all. God expects people to keep his law. Now, we factor in what we know, that all are sinners and can't obey God apart from Christ, but nonetheless, all have the obligation to obey God, and when they do not, God will hold those people accountable. So God roars like a lion against the nations. Now, let's come into the second section, then, in chapters 3 through 6, where we see God demands to be heard. He roars like a lion, he speaks, and now he tells the people, you better listen. This happens three times throughout this chapter, at the beginning of chapters 3, 4, and 5, throughout this section. Uh, listen to verse 1 of chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. In other words, God says, I'm going I'm to keep talking, and I expect you to listen. Now look at what he says in verse 2 as he begins to focus more specifically on the covenant people. He says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. And this is where we get the idea that the people will receive punishment and perhaps that punishment will be even worse than what the Gentiles will receive <clears throat> because God has entered into this covenant with them. They have greater knowledge, they have greater light, <clears throat> and therefore they have greater responsibility to obey God. And because they have not kept this covenant, this gracious covenant that proclaims salvation to them and obedience because of grace, therefore punishment will come 
against them. Whether you're in the covenant people or outside of the covenant people, the obligation is still there to obey God. And when God graciously allows one to connect to that covenant community, there is an even greater responsibility to own that covenant, to trust in God, and to faithfully obey him. The prophet goes on then to say, I will announce this judgment against you because God has appointed me to do so. Look at the beginning of verse 3. The prophet says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? All of these rhetorical questions are intended to highlight the idea that Amos speaks by divine appointment. Do two walk together unless they have agreed? If you're going to meet someone, if you're going to walk with somebody, you plan a time and a place to meet with them. That's how you organize a time of walking together. Amos saying, I don't speak unless God arranges for me to do so. Does the lion roar when it has no prey? Well, no. So if I'm roaring, if God is roaring, then it's because he has something to say. And all those other questions reinforce that idea before Amos explains the imagery himself and saying, God has spoken, therefore I speak. I proclaim to you the word of the Lord. I call upon the people named by God to be faithful to the covenant God has given them. Now, chapters 3 through 6 is the section we're looking at here where God demands to be heard. And there's really two themes that are prevalent in chapters 3 through 6. In chapters 3 and 4, the prophet actually broadens his indictment against Israel by highlighting more sins. In particular, God highlights their love of luxury and their religious syncretism. In other words, the way they mix religions or mix a human invention with religion. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. So there's the indictment of luxury, uh, that these people would oppress the poor and meanwhile only care about their own indulgence. Verses 4 and 5, go to Bethel and sin, and Bethel is a religious center. So go to church and sin. It's sin to go to church, Amos is saying. Why? Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. In other words, God's saying that the religion you're offering me is just a show. It's all externals, but there's no heart there. There's not real love for God and obedience for him, and God will not be fooled by it. He will not uh, accept it. So, chapters three and four broaden that theme. This is what Israel is guilty of. And then, chapters four and five 
express lament over the coming judgment. So because of sin, because of these sins, judgment will come. Chapter 5 expresses that lament. Look at verses 1 and 2. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. See, the prophet has a heart for the people. He is grieved and laments the fact that they will not repent and are in danger of God's punishment. God himself expresses mercy to the people. Look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5. This is what the Lord says to Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to mourning. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them. And Bethel will have no one to quench it. In other words, God's saying, away with the religious shows and the ceremonies. Seek me, find me, and then you will live. And such is God's mercy that he allows himself to be found by sinners who seek him. God calls them as part of seeking him to turn for their sins. Look at verses 14 and 15. God says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And there's a theme that comes out here in this verse, the maintaining justice in the courts, the focus on justice as an expression of a people that know and love God. You've already picked up on the care of the poor and needy in the book, and there were several more references we could highlight from this chapter and the rest of the book. God is saying to these people, when you're characterized by injustice, when you're characterized by mistreatment of the poor and needy, that is a sign that you do not know God. God says, if you do not love God, you will not love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. And those who are ungodly can can use even good things, proper things, as a way to pursue ungodliness. And God is saying, not among my people. That's not how my people act. They have received mercy, therefore they are mercy showers. They have been freed from the just punishment due to them, therefore they seek to show mercy and make sure that proper care is shown towards others. And that's one of the particular sins that that Amos the prophet really puts his finger on. The, The not knowing God can manifest itself in many ways. But this is one, therefore it is one that Amos calls his people's attention to. And so finally, as we come to the end of this section, if the people will not repent, they will not escape the day of the Lord. Look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? 
Now, we were just in Joel, which develops the idea of the day of the Lord, the day when God arises to rescue his people and to judge their enemies. And many within Israel were looking forward to that day. They had enemies. They had oppressors. They longed to see God arise and vindicate them by punishing their adversaries. But Amos gives the warning. That day won't be a good day for you if you are characterized by the same sins as the adversaries. Therefore, seek the Lord, Amos says. You're longing for that day. It's not going to be a good day. It's not going to be a day of brightness. It's going to be a day of darkness. It's going to be like you think you can escape. You escape the lion, but you meet the bear. You escape the bear. You get into your house, and then a snake comes through the wall and bites you. In other words, you can't escape God's judgment. You may escape this or that, but for the sinner, for the ungodly, there's no escaping the judgment of God. He can and will find them, no matter where they hide, even if they hide among his people, and he will punish them. So this is the promise that Amos gives. Like other prophets, Amos promises that God will that punishment will overtake the wicked, that God will humble the proud, that he'll root out unacceptable worship from his people. All of these are the sins that are just all bound up with one another as co- expressions of covenant unfaithfulness. So it's a sobering warning. It's one of those passages that causes us to, to look inside and, and to engage in healthy introspection. That, that mere membership in the covenant community is no sign of safety, but rather knowing the Lord truly, seeking Him, loving Him, and loving others as an expression of it. But as Amos turns these searching eyes upon us, hear the offer of mercy that he gives. To seek the Lord, promising that the Lord will be found. He gives mercy to all who call upon him, call upon him for more grace to obey and to love and serve him. And as he holds nations accountable, that's the promise. And I think the people would have loved that first part. Yes, the nations are going to be held accountable. That won't change. And yet Amos' focus is, Let's look at the covenant community. Let's engage in obedience there. And then God will take care of the nations in his own time. So let's ask God to help us be faithful to him and to trust him in the way he pursues those things. Let's pray together.